Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. So I was reminded yesterday in our um, media-wide phone call, uh, Zoom call that we have, uh, Northwestern Media, was reminded uh, just how much in need of a hug everybody is right now. I know you're probably feeling that way. Um, I'm feeling that way for those of us who are, you know, high-touch people or people for whom uh, physical touch is a primary love language or even a secondary love language, or frankly, just everybody after a year of of COVID, COVID social distancing, and in many places, very serious lockdown. Um, we're all in need of a hug. And one of my colleagues shared a number of verses that um, just reminded that God is always extending, always extending himself to embrace us in his everlasting arms, always extending his love to us, um, always desiring to hold us close, always available for us to um, approach him, crawl up into his lap, be absolutely enfolded in his grace and his love. So I want to encourage you to find yourself there today. Um, so I'm going to lift up a passage in the where in the word portion of our conversation from Philippians chapter one. During the season of Lent, I have been um, more intentional about reading the prayers contained in scripture back to God, uh, claiming them as my own. So that puts me in the Psalms very frequently. Today, it puts me in Paul's letter to the Philippian Christians um, and his recorded prayer there in the first chapter. I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine for all of you, um, for all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of God's grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Amen. We'll be right back. Doctor, my eyes have seen the So joining me now, Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Um, Brett, I am reading a headline right now that the state of Minnesota is expected to get about 45,000 doses of the just authorized Johnson & Johnson vaccine. They are to arrive this week. Um, and health officials are calling the arrival of the Johnson & Johnson one-dose shot a, quote, game changer. Um, others are not 
um, lauding the arrival of J&J vaccines in the same way. Why is that? Well, there's a couple different things. Number one, when you look at the uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it is the third piece of the armamentarium that we have against COVID in the U.S. And uh, uniquely, it is a uh, vaccine that is built on just a simple cold. It's built on a simple virus uh, that uses that same spike protein that we hear so much about. Uh, the nice thing about the vaccine is that because it's delayed in its, in its arrival from a phase three trial, it's been tested in about eight different countries that have had other variants. And so we know that it has pretty good response to the other variant aspects of it. Uh, and the other aspect of it is it doesn't require this deep freeze. And so the ability to deploy it and to get it out is one of those aspects that uh, is, is actually helpful because we don't have to have it maybe at a major medical center. It makes it easier for deployment within the area. And that we also know that its, it's ability to navigate around moderate and severe disease is quite good uh, against the U.S.-associated virus, probably about 78 percent against moderate to severe um, South African virus, about 64%, so still good. And the, and the Brazilian variant, about 68%. And so those are really helpful. You know, one of the things that comes up is always the question about how these things are navigated. And you know, there's some question in the background around the sourcing of the cells that were used to initially uh, derive the, vi- the uh, vaccine uh, and whether these were appropriately allocated uh, from, uh, you know, either specimens that were obtained appropriately as a natural process would be, whether that be from individuals donating plasma or other types of issues, or whether these were from fetal cells. And so those are always one of those ethical questions that we have to ask. And sometimes the amount of information available is uncertain, but it does call to question the ability for us to say, hey, we, we really support these vaccines. We just want to make sure that they are being ethically derived, ethically sourced, uh, and making sure that we stand for the greater aspect of life. When we talk about the ethics related to vaccine distribution, um, one of the storylines that, you know, we we touched on very, very early on in the conversation, people started asking questions about it. It's now a major global headline, and that is, you know, would countries like the United States supply uh, vaccines to other nations or would they vaccinate their own people first? We have certainly heard confirmation and affirmation that the United States um, and most of the countries of Europe intend to vaccinate their own populations first. Well, in the meantime, China and Russia are vaccinating the rest of the world. Um, So there's a vaccination diplomacy that is going on that I think is going to lead to more and more ethical conversations down the road in terms of what those um, what those countries will then be expected to sort of give back um, to China and Russia. It's just an interesting another interesting part of the ethical conversation um, you know, that not everybody has time to pay attention to. And I completely recognize that. Um, you know, go ahead. It's quite interesting. You'll hear the, the whole comment. You're right. It's there's this concept of the global north. And those are the countries that we know that are the higher income countries that are the ones that you see in the news that are actively vaccinating. They're, they're applauding the percentages of vaccines that they're given, the number that they're having. But each one of us recognize these things come at a cost. And you're right, there's the concept of the global south, which are the countries and the low and middle income sections of the world where they don't have the financial resources to be able to do this. And you're right, there has been a call from the WHO and others to say, how do we navigate this? Uh, Those locations don't have the resources. And so some of the challenges have been around some of the vaccines that require these heavy levels of refrigeration in countries that have a difficulty of regulating just electricity and the process by which they can distribute them. 
the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that came out that is more just standard temperatures and basic refrigeration is one that may actually allow for that type of a process. And so within the U.S., these are the only ones that we at this point have been able to have FDA approval of. And so I would anticipate that uh, from the global support network, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine will likely be the one that the U.S. will purport to go forward in that regard. Yeah, in the meantime, uh, China has built a new airport cargo terminal uh, in Ethiopia's capital and uh, has built soccer field-sized freezers to store vials of uh, Chinese state-controlled vaccines. It's just an interesting global conversation for sure. Um, All right, let's talk about school reopenings here in the United States uh, and the spread of, you know, the common cold. You know, it's interesting. So, we were talking yesterday with some of my colleagues that work in our pediatric emergency department. And over the last several weeks, uh, even though here in North Carolina, we've had some variations of, of schools opening. You know, we have some in the public sector where the kids go to school two days a week. They do a central cleaning uh, within the uh, hospital uh, or pardon me, within the uh, hold on, the uh, emergency department and uh, in the schools themselves on Wednesdays, a deep clean. And then they move on into a Thursday, Friday section. Well, over the last two weeks, he's like, gosh, you know, he says, I haven't seen so many of these uh, young respiratory kids with fevers. He says, we missed this entire season from the fall into this year just because of all of the issues that we have had related to, to COVID and them not being in school. And so the typical things, the rhinovirus and the adenovirus, the typical viruses, not the coronaviruses that we typically see, are the ones that have come front and center for them. Uh, and so this is expected. But to some degree, it begs the question about the compliance issues. It's like, OK, we know to go ahead and uh, minimize the issues around the uh, coronavirus and the spread, especially in the uh, school age population. Standard things go uh, hold in place, which is number one, wearing masks, number two, good hygiene, the opportunity to wash our hands, and again, from a spread perspective. But that being said, it was, has been very interesting that we have not had such a, a, a process related to it, but this is expected. We typically see this uh, in the fall, and we see this again in the spring in typical years, uh, and so now as schools are starting to navigate, we have to see this. What people have to recognize is if your child has upper respiratory symptoms, they have symptoms of low-grade fevers or otherwise, that does mean the standard process holds true regarding maybe quarantining or at least getting tested for COVID because, yes, an adenovirus is one thing, but COVID is quite another. All right. We um, we hear rumors uh, from time to time uh, about bad things that might be happening to us because we're wearing masks. I'd like for you to comment on one of those uh, after a very brief break. If I wear a mask, am I increasing my risk of lung cancer? That's up next with Dr. Brett Nix. We'll be right back. All right, returning to my conversation with Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Um, while I am most excited to get to the conversation about whether or not all calories are the same, all proteins the same, all fats the same, all sugars the same, um, while I'm excited to get to that conversation, let's dispense with this conversation. Um, and that is the those who would say that wearing a mask um, has some sort of negative long-term um, health risks or bad things are going to happen because we're being made to wear masks? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I hear this question from a lot of people on a daily basis that come in the emergency department. And as we're talking about the normal care process, they're saying, hey, you know, I wear this mask on a daily basis. Is that going to cause problems in my lungs? Uh, you know, hey, if the quality of the mask is not good, am I breathing in a bunch of particulates into my lungs? They're going to cause additional problems. 
Uh, and those are you know, very valid questions. You think about uh, people around the world, if you live in a massive urban center uh, and have high issues of pollution and air particulates, you see people wearing masks to keep those out of your lungs. And so, you know, the simple answer is no. These lungs are these these uh, masks are not going to be causing cancer. But at the same point in time, if you wear a disposable mask uh, for a long duration of time, the fibers are breaking down, or the wear and tear you're putting in your pocket and it's breaking down, there's a chance that you may get some irritants from those things, but nothing that's going to be causing cancer. The bottom line, as it relates to your mask, is number one. Are you cleaning it appropriate if it's a washable mask on a frequent basis? Number two, if you happen to have some upper respiratory symptoms, maybe a little bit of a cold, but it's not the coronavirus and you're trying to, to keep that at bay, recognize that, yeah, you're going to have some of those germs and whatnot trapped in the fibers there. So make sure that you change your mask appropriately and keep it clean. But I want to point out one thing that most people forget about, and that is simply how good are your teeth? Do you brush routinely on a daily basis? Do you floss? Because what we know more than anything else is for those that have very poor dentition, have recurrent issues as far as dental infections, those infections substantially increase the likelihood of you getting pneumonia and getting infections within your lung space. And many times that conversation doesn't even come up. You know, the conversation um, about masks um, for a lot of people ends up being a conversation about freedom. Um, you know, I, I try to characterize it then as a as a conversation also about um, love. Um, when you have conversations with people who reject the wearing of masks in, in all circumstances, under any circumstances, for any reason, what what do you tell them? What do you say to them? Yeah, I typically tell them it's it's a decision that they're making for the betterment of the people around them. I said, you know, if, if you don't believe that the mask is going to protect you, that's one thing. I said, but do it for the people around you that you might not know what their health status is. Maybe they have cancer and you don't know this. Maybe they have an underlying illness that they're not even aware of. Uh, and anything that you can do to protect them is a benefit for them. And so while you might not agree with wearing it for yourself, make the consideration and do it for someone else. And, and many times that actually plays out, especially when, I tell you, when you're outside and you're out in the sunshine or you're outside walking around, take your mask off, get some fresh air, breathe in what you can. But when you're in those spaces, make the assumption that someone around you has something that they're trying to protect against uh, and give them the benefit of the doubt. All right. And then let's talk about uh, this study, right, that if I switch to a plant-based diet, um, well, first of all, I am not going to give up all my meat. So how much of my how much of my diet do I have to replace um, is going to be a part of this conversation. But women, there's some evidence that women um, fare better long term if we would substitute some of our meat proteins for, let's say, nut proteins. So now you're going to tell me that all proteins are not the same in much the same way as you have told me that all calories, all fats, and all sugars are not the same. You know, I think there's truth to that. And here's the reality. It's so difficult for us to understand the full dynamic of the study that came out because what it's saying is, hey, if you have a certain amount of fat-based proteins and uh, meat-based proteins that are coming out um, – what you will end up finding is perhaps you're putting yourself at risk for heart disease and other things. Well, we know that's true in extreme circumstances, but what we have to recognize is God's created each one of us uniquely uh, individually. And based on your, the, gen the genome that God gave you will likely dictate what it is is the right balance for you. And I don't think we're too far off right now when you look at the different things that are out there. You hear about 23andMe and these other types of mm -hmm. things where you can find out about your genetic background. Well, there's ones that actually look at it from a genetic perspective specific to your dietary breakdown. And they may say, 
hey, Carmen, this is what you have, and hey, this is what Brett has, and you'll recognize that for you, you may actually have to have a little bit higher base of these proteins that are meat-based and a different balance of what it is from a nut-based. Um, I think that there, each individual will find that there's a unique balance that they will have to have. And for those who are, I'm a meat and potatoes kind of person every single day, that might be just too extreme for them and they need to balance it out. But at the same point in time, for somebody who says, hey, you know what, I'm not going to give up my chicken or I'm not going to give up my fish, I'm not going to give up my steak on a, on a recurrent basis, that's an okay thing as well, but you have to find that balance. And what's unique about this, in addition to what your, this article was saying, there was another one that just came out that parallels this that says, hey, when you're looking at your immunity – and your immune system's response. We know that while the American Dietary Association typical categories that each of us take in, if each of us on a daily basis have five servings in our uh, in our fruits and vegetables components, what does that mean? That means maybe a banana, maybe that means a little bit of spinach and a smoothie, or different types of, of mix of things. But but five servings in the course of the day will will also increase your immune status, but at the same time also help to balance out some of the issues related to the fats and the proteins that can be meat derivatives and or uh, nut and other variant derivatives. And so do we have the actual magic key as to what the balance is? I don't think so. Not quite yet because I think that each one of us will have a unique code that we will be able to say, ha, this is how God intended me to, to be uh, abundantly clear in what I'm doing and living and being incredibly vibrant and finding that balance is actually probably not too far away. Yeah, and the conversations include gluten and dairy and, yes, all kinds of things. I mean, what kinds of fats? I mean, it's a, it's a complex conversation, but it's a really important one for each of us to be, to be having um, and researching you know, on our own in terms of our best health for the stewardship of these bodies that God has given us. Okay, let's talk about night owls and retirement. Boy, you know, I don't know how many people are out there that are listening right now that are night owls. You know, that you stay up late in the night because that's just where you find your, your sweet spot. And then what you end up finding, however, is that most night owls, they actually don't fall asleep early enough to get the full complement of sleep that their body needs. And that's more true on working days. And then they play weekend warrior catch up where you're sleeping on these non-work days to a larger degree. And you know, there's a term that's out there. It's called social jet lag. It has nothing to do with flying, has everything to do with the fact that you're playing catch up on these weekends. And what most postulate, which we know to be true, is that if you fall behind on sleep, regardless of circumstance, and night owls tend to be in this space, that it actually, it actually causes long-term processes, both cognitively, your ability to think, but also with your immunity. You're not as strong from an immune system perspective, and you have this mismatch. And with this mismatch, especially as we age, uh, you end up finding that you have not just underperformance, but you have increasing risks of uh, injury, ex increasing risks associated with sleep deprivation, which we know lowers your immune system, increases your body's stress, and puts you at risk for infection. So it's quite fascinating. And the one caveat that even within this had commented is what a side piece of this was that those who are night owls that tend to fall behind on sleep also tend not to exercise to the degree that they should. And there was a new study that was just, just came out in the Journal of Nature that specifically looked at what most of us thought to be true was that when you exercise, exercise on a routine basis does something that we thought to be true but has now been proven, which it actually boosts your immunity. It shows that it actually triggers a marrow response in your body that allows the cells in your immune system to be proliferated, to be developed to a greater degree than those who don't exercise. So, hey, if you're a night owl, Make sure that if you do stay up late, that you're able to get the sleep that you need on a daily basis, because even the weekend catch-up's just not quite good enough. 
All right, you guys can uh, connect with Brett at Brett Nix. That's plural. BrettNixMD.com. Brett, as always, thank you so much for visiting with us. You can also check out what's happening at the Christian Medical and Dental Association, CMDA.org. Thanks, brother. Carmen, pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Blessings. We got to take a break for Breakpoint. All right, everybody's a little bit intimidated uh, to talk with people in the next generation about all kinds of things, but there are some things we absolutely must talk with the emerging generation about. And so we're going to talk with Jeff Grinnell about his new book, Gen SexYZ, uh, Love, Sexuality, and Youth. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Licato. The side of the healthy or successful prompts us to conclude, well, God must really love him. He's blessed with health, money, good looks, and skill. Or we gravitate to the other extreme, lonely and frail in the hospital bed. We deduce, God does not love me. How could he look at me? Rebuff such thoughts. Success signals God's love no more than struggles indicate the lack of it. The definitive God-sanctioned gauge is not a good day or a bad break, but the dying hours of his son. Consider them often. Let the gap between trips to the cross diminish daily. Discover what David Brainerd, the 18th century missionary to the American Indians, meant when he said, My heart was swallowed up in God most of the day. Accept this invitation of Jesus. From John 15 and verse 9, Abide in my love. This is Max Locato. Joining me now, Jeff Brunel. He's a nationally recognized youth ministry veteran. He inspires youth leaders uh, across the church, across the country, around the world. Um, He is really adept at having the conversation that many of us are uncomfortable having. The book is Gen SexYZ, S-E-X-Y-Z, if you are looking for it, Love, Sexuality, and Youth. Jeff, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Yes. Thank you, Carmen. Looking forward to this. Dude, you like to talk about that which nobody wants to talk about, just for the record. <laughs> you know what? It's, uh, yeah, maybe it's a cross to bear. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's good. Like some people are really good and they have cultivated an ability to talk about things. And then when we yeah. uh, demonstrate that uh, to other people, they grow more comfortable talking about it. And that is really a huge part of this. Um, yes. So I want to start with. Why does it matter? Like, you know, the the kids seem to know plenty about sex. Why is it important for we as Christians, parents and otherwise, why is it important that we talk with them about it? Yeah, you know, uh, I get that question often. Why a book like this? And, you know, to answer that to adults is um, is a little more difficult than to students because they're already having the discussions. (laughs) Right. And so to to uh, for adults to begin to talk about that. I love to watch the light come on. <laughs> I love to watch uh, the confusion, you know, uh, maybe the even sometimes the um, awkwardness of it, um, because it takes them back to maybe their teenage days, too. Yeah. And obviously, culture has changed a little bit, but um, the our students are having it younger and young, that conversation uh, younger uh, all the time. So 
if we're not comfortable having that conversation, then we're missing a, a, an incredible opportunity because the students are already having that conversation. And so I tell parents all the time, you know, who do you want to control this conversation? <laughs> do, do you want uh, do you want to control it in your home? And and I know our homes are various, you know, uh, as far as healthy and comfortable to even have any kind of conversation. You know, we've seen the statistics on uh, family conversation and they continue to go down. And so to to ask parents who's going to have that conversation, who do you want to have that conversation with your children is, is a place I like I like to start and Generally, you know, to be honest, most parents really want to. They're just not equipped to. No, that's exactly right. And that's what the book is designed to do. So the book is Gen XYZ, Love, Sexuality, and Youth. And if you're thinking, this is the book I need. I don't know how to talk to uh, to my right. young adult, to my teenager, to my kid. Um, I know I'm supposed to be. I know I need to be equipped. They're talking about it. They're talking about it with their friends. Um, I don't know how. We actually have copies of the book to give away today. So text the word mm-hmm. book to 877-933-2484, and we will give away all that we have. Um, let's um, let's jump in here to some deep water. Talk yes. to parents. Talk to parents who um, have a, a young person of really of any age that is identifying as gender fluid or gay or sort of flirting with the idea they are making they are making changes in their friend group or like there's there's evidences like you are seeing evidence that they are moving in the direction of aligning themselves in one way or another with the LGBTQ crowd. What, what yeah. how am I responding to that? Good. So, you know, one of the ways the, the book deals with that specifically in the family sexuality chapter, and it gives parents uh, some of the some of the uh, content and the context and how to do that content being the scriptural part of it and then the context how do I do that do, you know do I do it in passing when we're arguing <laughs> do um, or do I sit down at a table or sit down in the front room you know so the, we can control both the content and the context but co- having comfort with the scriptures having comfort with the culture and society and how they see the language, you know, that goes on. And so I give them, uh, you know, one of the things I try to do is to help them to understand that uh, if you're prepared with the conversation, then um, preparation breeds confidence. And so what do we prepare ourselves with? And I I think it's the key text that, that must be used because if we want to, you know, Psalm 78 talks about the handoff of faith from one generation to the next. And Carmen, we've really done a poor job in the church of handing off the faith from one generation to the next. And, you know, the studies are are, are all over the place. Sociological models have, have come in with a, a few different um, percentages, but grandparents, the builders in the silence, had about a 65% biblical worldview. So they could handle that content probably a lot better than than Gen X, their parents, which would be the parents today of, you know, millennials and teenagers. They had about a 31 percent biblical worldview. So it dropped in half from the grandparents to the parents. And then you look at the millennials, which would be the older brothers and sisters of of Gen Z. 
19% biblical worldview. So there's dropped, you know, 20% from their parents. And now today, Gen Z, teenagers today, up to about 22, 23 years of age. So let's throw in the college kids, a 4% biblical worldview. So you can't argue, you can't argue in a natural way, uh, culturally, when really this is a more spirit, a spiritually driven conversation. And if you don't know the, the scriptures, then it's very difficult to have that conversation. So that, that handoff in Psalm 78, it's an iconic uh, chapter that, that basically says from the grand, grandfathers, the forefathers, to the parents, to the children and their children. And, their ch- and that handoff of faith has been done really poor. So I think it begins with understanding both culture and scripture language so that I, I know how to even begin that conversation. So, Jeff, um, first of all, the the theological work that you do um, at the outset of the book is really critical and important. It's also mm-hmm. very um, approachable or accessible. Like there's nothing in here that is yeah. I don't, there's not words you have to look up. And I, I really appreciate that. I appreciate yeah. that you approach this in a way that is you know at the level of. Uh, mm-hmm. A friendly, e- easy consumption, and that you start Good with thing. the devil stole sex. Like, right? I just really appreciate that. Yeah. I will say that the well, the the chapter I loved the most was chapter five. Two problems collide, mm. and yes. the page and the page I loved the most um, is ten signs of a sexually healthy home. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever seen anybody just lay it <laughs> out like because you know. So like, right? As the uh, as the parental units in the house, like I. I can look at this and I can say, well, I'm responsible for this. I I may not, oh, you know, my. I may not exactly know how to engage one particular kid or a particular young adult on the topic right now, but I can control this. And so I thought oh, it was really, yeah. uh, really a bless, a blessing and a help. Good. You know, uh, uh, like this weekend, uh, I'm speaking at an event, uh, hundreds of parents, and I get an email uh, this was on Sunday. I get an email on Monday morning from a father who says, you gave me my conversation with my child. Hmm. And the statement, it, um, I actually received several emails, but the statement that this father made was somebody else has been having this conversation and I've been afraid to, but you gave me practical ways for me. So he went out, bought the five books and gave them to his friends <laughs> and who have teenagers, you know. And, you know, I get down to that that chapter. It, it To me, again, it goes back to that handoff, but it gets down to the sanctity of gender, the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of sex, sex relations, those three things. And we can go all the way back to Genesis and see the model. We can walk all the way up to Revelation and see the model. And so that's what I try to help uh, parents understand is our, what the, the principles of one generation become the practices of the next. Isn't, isn't that good? Mm-hmm. The principles, Absolutely. yes, the principles of one generation become the practices of the next. And so that's why I say we've done a pretty poor job of handing off the faith to the next generation. All right. I am talking with Jeff Grinnell. We're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. The book is Jen Sex YZ, Love, Sexuality, and Youth. We are giving away copies today. If you'd like to enter the drawing, text the word book to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back.
All right, I'm continuing my conversation with Jeff Grinnell. We're talking about his new book, Gen XYZ. So you could think of it as Generation XYZ, or you could think about it as Generation Sex YZ, or the XYZs of generation. Like, okay, so this is like generational conversations about sex, particularly with emerging generations. So Gen XYZ, Jeff Grinnell is the author. Um, okay, terminology. This would be one of the probably scariest parts for adults. Um, it, there's not a yeah. day. Like I, I'm at the stage now where there's not a day that I don't come across something that I'm like, I don't know what that means. So yesterday, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the word, it's spelled W-O-M-X-N. And it was some, you know, there are a group of social media influencers or gamers or something. And instead of identifying as women in celebration of whatever women's celebration month this happens to be in the month of March, they want to celebrate this. And I don't even know how to say that. W-O-M-X-N. And I don't even and I don't know what it means. And now I'm in trouble. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? So. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Abagnale effect from, uh, you know, the, the the movie Catch Me If You Can. <laughs> um, I, I love to when it comes to all these terms and understanding them. Um, this is this is what I, I like to say. Obviously, obviously, social media has changed the game, but we've been looking at the counterfeit so long. We're mm. really comfortable with the counterfeit, and to me, it gets back to that whole statement when. Um, if we really want to understand what the counterfeit looks like, we have to look at the genuine article. <laughs> and so mm. to me, the, the language that we should be most concerned about is scriptural. And I know I sound like, you know, no, that's like so your good. Grandmother or your grandfather. But because we've done such a poor job of theology, to me, the best way to answer the language, the best way to answer the terminology is to bring people back to the original. <laughs> and so whether we call that the Abagnale effect or the Pauline effect or, you know, uh, the, the mosaic effect, there's so many different ways to look at that. And so whether it's, you know, Womexin or woke, some people are calling it Wokesin and taking mm. the M out and, you know, I'm woke with the X, you know. So when we are putting the, your, your listeners will love this. When we were putting the titles for the book together, we had really thought about the devil stole sex. And then in the in this conversation in the room, you know, we have editors there and the marketers are there and, and they're like, I don't know, that goes back to Prada, you know, and, and so we're like, OK, let's how about and I throw this one out, Jen Sexy. And someone's oh, like, oh, you know, there you go. So spell, mm-hmm. So like even with when you say, Carmen, sex, Y, Z, that's how most people are saying it. And that's why that's what the title looks like with the, uh, you know, the way uh, they the, did the they, font. But yes, yeah, you're yeah. right. It is Jen sex, Z, <laughs> sexy, Z. <laughs> it is Jen, yeah, S-E-X-Y, sexy, Z. It's like sexy a Z. Scrabble game. I love it. Well, and what it does, it, it honestly, the, when people ask me, what do you call it? I say, what do you want to call it? Let's just have a conversation. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm, uh, that is so great. I, I, so helpful. All right. So, um, so I'm typing. I'm taking notes. I have kids. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You're, yeah. Um, you know, you're here for my personal edification today. Um, and course. also for the edification of tens of thousands of people listening right now and those who will be listening uh, to the podcast later on. So if you're listening live, now's the time to text in 
to enter the drawing for the books that we're giving away. So text the word book to 877-933-2484. We want to give away the copies of Jeff Grinnell's book, Jen Sexy Z, now that I know how to say it, or Jen (laughs) Sex YZ. I don't know, XYZ. It's very cool. Um, that we're giving away today, so jump in on that. Um, you have a gay brother. Like, I'm going to jump into deep water again. Um, there are definitely people listening who are like, I don't even, I don't know how I would handle that in my family. I don't know how I would go on relating to a person. And yet, the reality is, we have a generation, generations now, of people mm-hmm. for whom that is the norm. It is, it is no longer non-normative in our culture. Can you just oh, talk absolutely. a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, it really confuses me how people can ostracize or scarlet letter one issue. I'm going to call it issue. Mm-hmm. In the book, we we I, I call it a sin. I, I call it, uh, you know, like I call uh, several issues in, in, this, in, in the book, sin. But what we have done is we have um, put the scarlet letter on a whole group of people that we've chosen to put the scarlet letter on. When we really are not being fair to our to to theology, because if we're going to put a scarlet letter on one issue, then why not on obesity and why not on gossip and why not, et cetera. Right. And so uh, I had to me and my family had to settle 20 plus years ago. How are we going to deal with this? Well, Mm -hmm. personally, I've always been uh, more of a rebel anyway, and have always been more of an evangelist anyway in my thinking. And it was very, it was very easy for me to have the conversations with my brother. And because I I understood the gospel, the gospel did did not, um, you know, I love the phrase in Luke where Luke uses the term and Jesus was cozy with the crooks, sat with the sinners or whatever. And I think sometimes what we've done is we've said this category is worse than others, or this category is uh, is is something that we just don't accept in the in in the crowd. Yeah, they have to behave to belong or whatever. And I think that's dangerous to get into as believers that we become the judge of who is in and who is out. So the conversation that we have. Uh, around the table is we don't we don't have to behave to belong, and we don't have to agree to um, have a, a relationship. So, because that's what we do in every other area of our life with other friends at the office or at school or in the church, on the worship team, it's or in our families, <laughs> or in our families. So, I think a healthy understanding that we are all. Um, still trying to relate to a very cultural issue, that's okay. I, I get the, I get that awkwardness. But if we don't become more comfortable with it, the generation that we're raising is very comfortable with the conversations. All right. There's a ton in this book that you're going to just um, um, love. The acronym DATING uh, is offered here when describing rules that young people should set for themselves. That was particularly helpful. I am sharing that mm-hmm. with the teenagers in my home. Um, there is There is... There is great redemptive material in this book, and it's wonderful equipping for those of us that are in relationship with people in the next generation, which really should be everybody. So, Jeff, um, thank you so much. Where's your preferred uh, preferred place in social media for people to engage with you? Because they're going to want to. Yeah. You know, just go to all the social platforms and forward slash uh, Jeff Grinnell. 
uh, maybe you can put that on the screen, you know, yeah, uh, absolutely. on your site. It's on the back He's of the a, book, too. I've been, tweeting, I've been tweeting him out like mad, but I'm not sure that Twitter <laughs> is his preferred social media follow. So, but you can find him everywhere. Grinnell is yeah. spelled G-R-E-N-E-L-L, the book. Jen, sexy Z, love, sexuality, and youth. What a pleasure, Jeff. Thank you so much. Of course. Thanks, Cameron. Absolutely. We'll be right back. Puppies are cuddly. Puppies are cute. Puppies are cuddly. Puppies are cute. I don't know yet. I don't know. I don't know yet if the seven puppies at my house now are, they sure are cute. That is true. I grant you that. All right. Have a blessed day. Um, let me give all, give me all of your puppy advice, puppy raising advice, puppy counsel. You can find me. I am Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. I'm on all the socials. And you can grab today's podcast and share it with someone else later today at MyFaithRadio.com. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.